and housing is at the root of so many things um so many problems so so uh, the biggest problem you know apart from the, the obvious major thing of people just not having somewhere affordable to live is that um lack of housing constrains mobility it stops people from moving to be near their family near their friends and um from an economic perspective most importantly near to job opportunities and near to high paying highly productive um high wage firms Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, is housing reform doomed? Not only has the UK had a new prime minister this week with Rishi Sunak taking the helm, but we've also seen a return of Michael Gove as the Secretary of State for leveling up housing and communities. This marks the seventh time the Cabinet Secretary for Housing has changed in the last five years, with ever-changing reform proposals across the sector. To discuss the state of housing reform, I'm very excited to be joined by John Myers. John is the co-founder of the NB Alliance, the Yes in My Backyard campaign to end the housing crisis. He's also a deep thinker about how to achieve pro-growth policy change. John, I want to start before we get on to what the new government potentially means, a little bit of a look back at what just happened. I think we're all kind of reeling uh, in in a sense of shock about how quickly the, the trust project seemed to rise and fall. Um, in particular, there was a big commitment from Trust when it came to building and growing and a focus on housing and infrastructure. What, what did you make of the, the discussion from the Trust government? What, was it mistaken? Was it hand-fisted? Uh, did, did it contribute to a downfall? What, what, what do you put, what, what's your view on all that? Well, first of all, man, I should say, you know, if, if you wanted a top political and economic thinker, then um, I assume they were busy and that's why you have me instead. But um, <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the, I think there are enormously interesting lessons to be drawn from what happened with the trust government. And, you know, for this discussion, we should probably set aside um, the the budget and the question of interest rates. And, um, but, you know, I think we should remember that, that budget came out in the process of a market distortion, a market cataclysm, if you will, which was driven by the pension regulator actually going around and encouraging pension funds with people's life savings in them to embark on very highly leveraged arrangements, which resulted in margin calls. Um, now, we don't know how that budget would have fared in a different um, environment, but um, it's clear that we need to fix the regulation that, le- that led to those problems. And I personally don't think pension funds should be subject to arrangements where they, where they can get margin calls. Um, so there are kind of regulatory issues that even the, the free market classical liberal needs to address because ultimately those pension funds are backed by the taxpayer. Yeah, but I mean, there's, up- there's, an, there's, there's an interesting point there that the, the regulatory framework effectively encouraged them to have those arrangements to, to balance uh, their life does but kind of go and get back back into the focus here on, on housing and planning which I think was something that didn't get as much focus in the trust government but was I, th- I think genuinely a big part of their agenda or at least a big intended part of their agenda if nothing much ended up coming of it in such a short period of time yeah I mean I so I thought it was refreshing to be honest the extent to which the trust government did recognize that um land use regulation in this country is a problem and that it needs to be drastically improved and that that would deliver better growth that would deliver better jobs that would make our children better off than we are um and it's one of the key reasons why we've had slow growth 
for so long. Um, and I think you know, the lessons to be learned are how to go about it. And you know, it's interesting, even in the nuance of what they said. Um, so the promise was to, um, to ban uh, solar farms on certain additional areas of farmland. You know, you could see, um, if you will, NIMBY pressures affecting even the trust government, which is the most gung-ho government for planning reform that, that I remember seeing. Um, and so, you know, what I think we should take away is that the political pressures on any government are absolutely enormous in terms of planning. And so if we want to fix, if we want a better planning system that actually will ultimately deliver plentiful housing, we have to be much more politically clever um, than anyone has been so far. And we have to, you know, we have to make sure that we come up with things that can actually get through Parliament and stick. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point there. It felt like quite a lot of the trust agenda was... Uh, from, I suppose, a free market liberal perspective, extremely welcome, necessary. Um, but of course, uh, even if putting aside the, the mini budget issues and the, the early collapse of the government, I do wonder if much of it was actually ever going to get anywhere. Was was the, the kind of radical proposals on uh, housing reform, although we don't know what those proposals were, going to get anywhere? Were the, the, there was the early discussion about spinning up infrastructure, maybe that was kind of minor enough to get somewhere. Like what, what, um, could I suppose what could have been, or is is the truth of it? Maybe not much could have been because there wasn't enough thinking about the politics. No, no I, I think there are lots of things that could have been and could still be. You know, I think there's lots of sensible things that we, could be done on infrastructure. We have completely labyrinth and Byzantine, um, nightmarish processes for getting infrastructure approved. Um, you know, including just completely crazy things like the the condition that gets imposed on um, the planning permission for, for a new generating plant actually gives a maximum megawattage that it's allowed to generate. Even if it doesn't change its external appearance at all, you know, there's a, there's a certain maximum amount of power and it has to go back through the entire planning system again if it wants that change. I mean, this is just complete craziness. There is no reason why we should have these things. We have these year, decade long um, processes with tens of thousands of pages costing absolute obscene amounts of money. Um, and we just need we, we need to make that all simpler and better. But I think we're not going to manage to make it simpler and better until we re recognize the political reality that the people don't like things getting built near them. And you've got to bring people along with you if you want a sustainable system that's going to generate plentiful infrastructure, plentiful housing um, without getting politically overturned. Yeah, well, I think that kind of moves us on quite neatly then to where we, we think Sunak will go next with planning reform. So, so during the leadership campaign, Sunak very much talked uh, along those lines, I guess, increasing density in our inner cities, investing in regenerating brownfield land, everyone's favorite, as well as pursuing developments that have community support. Um, and we also saw Gove discuss quite a lot about local aesthetics, local community support for development. What, what do we already know about his views and potentially then the views of the government when it comes to planning reforms? Well, we know a fair amount of what Michael Gove thinks, because um, a lot of what he thinks was put into the levelling up bill, which is still going through Parliament, you know, and he is in favour of localism. Um, he is in favour of um, a better planning system. He is um, he is not in favour, as far as we can tell, of sort of radical, huge new towns in the countryside or um you know, it's not clear to me that the investment zone proposals, as they were proposed under tr the trust government, are going to go ahead. You know, there's always been an interest, I think, um, 
Rishi Sunak was was uh, one of the earlier proponents of free ports, and so I think we might see some variation of those plans going ahead. Um, you know, it's difficult with that sort of um, scheme to deliver enormous amounts of housing where it's most in demand. You know, the, you may get you may get some regeneration around the country, um, and we did see things like Canary Wharf in in London, which had a you know which were analogous to an investment zone when it was first set up but that was right next to the city of london you know it's much more difficult to do that back um you know near my hometown in lancashire than it is to do it when you've already got a global economic powerhouse right next to you um and so in terms of other things um michael gove will do um it looks like he'll carry on with the sort of street boats uh, initiative that we've been pushing which is a way for communities to say yes for more housing where you know where they can see the benefits for them and it's just a supplement to the existing planning system so it can't it can't damage any housing that's already coming through so i'm hopeful he will continue to press on with that um and then there are lots of things he can do in policy he doesn't need legislation to get more things through you know there's um amazing there was an amazing story of the uh there was a jewish community in south tottenham who who or many of whom have large families, many children, and they were absolutely stuck for space. They had families crammed into quite small terrace houses. And so they worked with the local council to create rules on what could be done to add more bedrooms to those houses and give, you know, give their kids a bedroom each. And that's generated much better results, um, you know, really quite well-designed um, houses that have been extended upwards. And that, and that you can just do through planning policy. That's something that the Secretary of State can just sign. So, you know, there are lots of things he can still do um, that he probably hasn't even started on yet um, uh, before the next election. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, Go very much came in as a, a rejection of a lot of the previous housing white paper, uh, particularly the ones led by Robert Jenrick to introduce a zonal system where pretty much if uh, local council sets a certain area for growth um, or the, there can't be any further political rejection of development proposals if they're within the rules and that kind of proposal is gone but at the same time um something that gove has supported quite strongly and, and i want to go a little bit more detail on is this idea of street boats uh which we've heard talked about increasingly in, in policy debate it's something that um gets a uh, very strong support from people who are in the I suppose the YIMBY movement, the pro-housing reform movement as a way to build local support for housing. At the same time, though, it doesn't always necessarily get the, an instinctive welcome from planners who see it as potentially a loss of their own control uh, when it comes to what is being developed. Do you want to go into a little bit more about how you can envisage street votes, um, I guess, helping address both concerns when it comes to uh, building more homes, but also local community concerns about too much development? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I should say up front, so credit to Robert Jenrick, who was the, um, the first Secretary of State to say that it was government policy to bring street votes in. Um, and so I'm very grateful to him for that. The idea behind street votes is just that there are very, you know, if you look at the areas with the highest housing demand, with the greatest unmet demand for housing, um, where the price of a house, the price of a home is often five times the actual cost of building another home. And so the, the real constraint is getting planning permission to add more housing then um, communities and, can add enormous amounts of value if they have additional planning permission to add more homes. And so the idea is to let the communities get some of that value for themselves. And um, we're proposing a, a, a levy where some of that 
goes to for necessary infrastructure because obviously there are always externalities there are always you know there are always collective action problems um but the bulk of those benefits will go to the community themselves and so the the, the proposal in its very simplest form is if the res if two-thirds of the residents on the street can agree that they should have additional planning permissions whether it's just to add additional bedrooms of a certain design or whether it's to really go for it and add more flats um, perhaps add even a granny cottage at the end of their back garden on, onto an alley so they're creating a new muse um, then they should be able to just do that and subject to very strict rules to make sure that people on other streets are protected um, why on earth shouldn't they be allowed to do that because if that brings enormous benefits to them and it's not harming anyone else why do we need to impose a, a lengthy uncertain and costly process of going through a traditional planning permission which by the way was never ever designed to allow the sort of densification that this is talking about and i'm just going to disagree with you by the way because we have lots of planners who support this idea and many of the planners i talk to are absolutely sick of dealing with applications for mrs miggins extension and the planning departments are swamped with applications um and they'd much rather be doing big projects and big sites and you know dealing with somebody's extension or an additional flat or additional granny cottage is not why any anybody goes into planning right so so if we can relieve some of the burden of, of the kind of minor bureaucratic stuff from planners and also generate more revenue for the council to be able to deal with planning of big sites and site allocation and new master plans then that's win-win for everybody and you know yeah, I, I think, think Another yeah. potential importance of this, particularly at the moment, is in the context of the recession we're walking into. And there's already pretty strong evidence that the major developers are reducing their construction because of higher costs and, and potentially lower demand because of higher interest rates. Um, and that inevitably, after a recession, it tends to help the, the larger builders and you see smaller, fewer, smaller SME builders. Street votes is something that I suppose would both increase economic activity during a potential downturn and help get out of that and, and kind of go for growth if, as still a, if that's still a goal of the government, but also provide opportunities to those smaller builders to continue operating when there might not be as many bigger developments. There might be a lot of small development opportunities. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so, um, Big builders with large sites will respond very rationally to a downturn in prices, and they will only build at the pace at which they can sell those, um, uh, you know, uh, to, to meet their their targets. And so they will slow down. Whereas a small builder um, has probably got one site or two sites, and they will just carry on building, um, and they might have to take a hit on the price that they get. But that's just the name of the game. They don't have a choice. And so if we can supply lots more small sites for small and medium sized builders. They will keep going. That will keep the construction industry going, um, and that will obviously help the economy. Not just in that way. I mean, I, so with um, with Sam Bowman and Ben Southwood, I wrote a big piece called "The Housing Theory of Everything," and housing is at the root of so many things, um, so many problems. So, so uh, the biggest problem, you know, apart from the, the obvious major thing of people just not having somewhere affordable to live, is that um, lack of housing constrains mobility it stops people from moving to be near their family near their friends and um from an economic perspective most importantly near to job opportunities and near to high paying highly productive um high wage firms who are desperate to grow and to find the workers but those workers can't find enough housing they can afford near to those firms and so if we can help to unlock some of that potential that will of itself just boost growth Indeed, indeed. And and I, I, sh I shouldn't be too snarky in the sense that, uh, of course, 
Um, one of the interesting things Rishi Sunak did say is, although he the trust made mistakes, uh, very much respectful of the goal to, to go for growth. And I hope we do indeed see some of that agenda continue going forward. I'm kind of interested uh, on that kind of recession point. There is a bit of discourse at the moment. Well, um, isn't it great? Interest rates are a little bit higher. Uh, that means, although maybe it's terrible for people who are currently in a home, have taken out to a bigger loan and, and will, will therefore struggle potentially in hundreds or thousands of pounds extra in mortgage repayments. On the other hand, well, if you're wanting to buy a home, there's going to be a little bit less demand and maybe lower prices. Do you, do you think there's anything to that? Is is it good news, higher interest rates for home no. ownership? At- I'm going to knock that one right on the head. Yeah. So unless you are sitting on on a massive pile of cash sufficient to just buy a home without a mortgage, then buying a house has just got more difficult. And it's also got more difficult to fund projects to build more homes um, because you'll have to pay those interest costs over the period. So that's, that's another piece of damage to the construction industry, to the economy and to the supply of homes. Um, but if interest rates have gone up, that means that buying has become more has become less affordable and so it's it's just not a good economic signal for anybody except yeah, I mean, except, you... except there's very few people around the country who, who happen to be sitting on cash to the value of a house yeah i mean you would think for uh in the longer run, it, let's say we we stabilize a slightly higher interest rates, the 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 impact would probably be neutral in the sense that rather than um you effectively rather than paying a larger amount to a previous homeowner, you're paying more to the bank in, in interest repayments. So that the total value of the loan is lower, your interest repayments are higher um, as a percentage, and therefore you more or less end up going to be paying the same level of, of mortgages. But I think in the short run, the, the dynamic is probably a little bit more pessimistic and negative on that. The well, other... I mean, I'm not a macroeconomist, but so I do think actually, um, ideally... You know, if you think of real interest rates as, as where the schedule of demand hits the schedule of investment projects, you want um, to have if you, if you want more housing built, you actually want the financing of those projects to be as cheap as possible. Now, there are all a whole lot of other things that interest rates are telling us. And the fact that interest rates have been so low, I would argue, has partly been because we have artificially limited the number of things that you can build and that you can you can just walk around almost any expensive city and just find an almost infinite number of places where you could profitably build if only you were allowed to. If we enabled more of those projects, we'd probably have lower real interest rates. But ultimately, setting that aside, um, higher interest rates do make housing, any any housing, less affordable. Well, and the other element here, of course, is in the rental market, which, which although is kind of interconnected, is also um, seeing pretty historically high levels of rental costs and potentially a little bit of discussion about reduction in availability. Now that that in some respects seems even more dire. Um, and I'm interested in what your your thoughts are on on the state of the rental market. Yeah, it's brutal. You know, if you look at London, for example, Spare Room um, had some great data they put out on the number of bedrooms that were available for flat shares, and they have plummeted, and rents have gone up a lot. Um, you know, I just I'm just hearing horrific stories of people just desperate even to be able to view a flat that they might eventually rent and um, people having to write essays to justify um, why they'd be the right tenant you know all of these crazy things are going on and it's just an absolutely brutal position to be a private renter right now Um, and this is obviously one of the major reasons why we need to fix the the housing situation the shortage of housing um, in places like London. 
yeah, it does also seem like a, a potential contributor is um, we've seen a whole bunch of new regulations on uh, landlords, which although obviously a lot of people who are renting in the first instinct uh, is to welcome some of that. But I, I think there's also a bit of a risk there that potentially some of the rental problems could get worse if, for example, the government goes ahead as as Gove seems to be intent on um, ending no-fault evictions. Great for existing renters. Um, but at the same time, if you're potentially going to have a decision to make whether or not you're going to buy to rents or let out a property or sell a property, you could end up in a situation where maybe house prices have gone down a little bit because the, that the, if you're renting and you don't quite have the capital to buy, there does seem to be a bit of a trade-off there in, in that particular dynamic. I mean, I think there are some trade-offs. Um, you know, I, I obviously, I think it's, I think renters right now are in an absolutely desperate situation. And so I can completely understand that Michael Gove wants to help them. I think the devil, is, I think it's going to be really critical to see the details of how things like the no-fault eviction work, um, you know, and whether he can arrange it, whether he can arrive at something that doesn't damage um, the market, that doesn't damage um, the supply of, of of new properties to rent, you know, because I think we've, we've there have been places in the past where um, certain kinds of rent regulation or control have backfired quite horribly. So I think it's key that whatever he does, he does that carefully and well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the general message. Well, hopefully we can be um, a little bit more optimistic when it comes to, to next things in this government. There is, a, there is a relatively short period of time, but um, in some respects, I think you could make a positive argument here that Simon Clark might have, although been pro more housing development, would have slowed down some of the potential reforms because it would have had to bring them back, reconsider them. And potentially we, we might see the, the levelling up bill going through Parliament a little bit faster and, and some of those reforms like straight votes coming in a little bit sooner. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know, right? Uh, so I, I suspect it's not clear to me that investment zones will now be whether they will be in the levelling up bill or not. Um, without those, um, it will undoubtedly be faster. Um, but, you know, I thought I thought Simon Clark was um, Simon Clark is clearly bright. Um, he actually got that you need to find a political pathway through. He really did get that, you know, if you give people um, big discounts on their energy or even free energy like they do in France in some places, um, they're going to be much happier about a new power plant near them. And, you know, we may not like that sometimes we have to do these these deals. Um but practically speaking, if the way to if the way to get energy production or the way to get housing done is to do deals with the locals, then you know a, a free marketeer should say let's do the deals. I'm personally pro deal. I think that's that's probably the way through here, which is to to try to find a kind of cosy and mutually beneficial solutions to, to housing. And Street Boats does that quite well. I think when it comes to something like fracking, although the government's put that aside now and paying for locals' energy bills, or and the same principle for solar or wind as well, where you can find that mutual agreement is going to be so important. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think wind is a particularly interesting one, because if you look at the polling, um, some people do get quite upset about new wind turbines near them, but um, it, that varies widely around the country and the same for solar. And, um, you know, in some respects, sometimes it's it's mainly the second homeowners who get upset about certain, about, about perhaps a solar farm or wind power. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you can find swathes of the country um where people would be absolutely thrilled to get a new solar farm or a new wind farm near them and let's remember the solar farm you can still have sheep grazing underneath you're not throwing the farmland away um and the, i mean personally i happen to quite like the way wind turbines look i know i know opinions differ on it <laughs> but i think i think they're sort of you know people people love these sort of 
amazing railway bridges from the Victorian era, and then they look at a wind turbine. It, 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 I, perhaps they'll just get to use, used to them as, as they age. I don't know. Um, so, you know, I think I think there's lots to be done there. But the trick, the other trick though, is with the energy market, and this is the thing people neglect. Um, the other problem with the regulation regulation system that we currently have is that it's extraordinarily difficult to get your new power plant connected to the long distance transmission grid, and so um, you need to either site that power plant near to where the demand is going to be, or or we need to simplify um, and streamline how we build long distance power lines. Well, on on that kind of positive, optimistic note, to pro uh, solar, pro wind, pro housing. Uh, thanks so much for coming on to the IA podcast, John. My pleasure. Thank you, Matt.